0: Well, I I think what people miss is that we're not separate to nature. We're a part of it. And actually our well-being, our food, our water, our air, our sense of peace and harmony is intricately linked
1: with nature. It's time to change the world. It's time for something better. We're telling the stories of people who are changing the world and how you can help. Our daily actions have a massive impact. So what will we do about it? We can remake the world because guess what? We can. Hi, everyone. I'm Nathan Gardner, and this is We Can Remake the World, a podcast about people who are changing the world and how you can help. Here's the good news for today. Those of you who are passionate about wildlife will love the first piece of good news for today. A ceremony took place last Friday. On Earth Day, to break ground on the world's largest highway wildlife crossing. This took place in Calabasas, in Southern California. Highways are not only dangerous for wildlife, which we see evidence of all over the world, of course, where animals make attempts to cross amidst oncoming traffic, but they're also disruptive. Highways slice natural ecosystems and habitats in half, which is why so many animals try to cross roads to get to the other areas that they're familiar with as far as their habitat. This has a negative impact on genetic diversity and on the ability of endangered species to recover and thrive. The Wallace-Annenberg Wildlife Crossing will reach across 10 lanes of California's famous Highway 101, laying groundwork for global models of wildlife conservation and connecting two key regions for California wildlife around LA, including the Los Angeles Cougar. The crossing came together as the result of public and private partnership, which could also serve as a model for future projects like this one, with many public organizations getting involved, like the National Park Service in the United States, joining with over 5,000 donors from both public and private circles to raise over $97 million for this project which is being built in California's Liberty Canyon, where many Hollywood celebrities have their homes. The groundbreaking last Friday came the morning after a wild mountain lion was struck and killed on California's Highway 405, just 20 minutes by car away from the construction site. So this is great news to prevent stories like that one from repeating in the future. Our next piece of good news comes from Australia where two new marine parks with a combined area larger than the state of Texas have just been created. These protected areas will now surround Christmas Island off of Australia's southeast coast and the Cocos Islands to the far west of Australia's western coast, and they'll protect over 280,000 square miles of marine area, which is twice the size of Australia's Great Barrier Reef. This means now that 45% of Australia's territorial waters are now under protection and conservation management, which is amazing, and Australia is becoming a global leader for ocean protection. And because it's Earth Day week, we're going to share a third piece of good news. This time, we'll go to France, where an anonymous Frenchman has decided to use his massive winnings from a European lottery to give back to the Earth. The winner of Europe's Euromillions jackpot has used most of his 200 million euros in winnings, the second largest jackpot win in the lottery's history, to create the Anyama Endowment Fund, which will work to protect tropical rainforests in Western Africa and forests in his native France. Frustrated by deforestation that he observed while spending time in West Africa, and distressed by an increasing loss of native French forests, the retiree from southern France, who wishes to remain anonymous, provided the following quote on the Anyama website to explain why he did what he did. "'Above all, it is the expression of a conviction that I want to share with as many people as possible.'" giving makes people happy and constitutes a tremendous lever for transforming indignation into concrete and useful actions. End quote. Anyama will not only protect forests and biodiversity in Africa and France, but will also provide support to family caregivers in need who are taking care of family members in advanced age. The winner has said that he's played the jackpot for years for the sole purpose of winning and creating this foundation a gift to the earth. A pretty amazing reminder of what the commitment of one or many people can do to celebrate the earth and to help make the spirit of Earth Day become part of our daily experience. Before we get to today's episode, I just wanted to share briefly how grateful I am for inspiring stories for good people and good news. I've been feeling a bit overwhelmed and honestly just sad sometimes about many aspects of our world right now, and I doubt I'm alone there. From the current violence in Ukraine, Yemen, Palestine, and Hong Kong, to distressing environmental degradation and news from Asia, Brazil, and around the world, it's just a lot right now. It's a lot for all of us on a lot of levels, and I'm doing my best to stay positive, hopeful, and oriented toward what's possible and being part of that story but I also don't want to ignore the other feelings that I'm having, and I think a lot of us are having these days, which is why I'm so grateful for our guest today and the conversation that we shared. Our guest was in a hopeless situation. He felt like he was wasting his time doing something that couldn't ever possibly bear fruit, unable to solve the big problems he was facing. And then, in his own words, one day everything changed. A solution became clear. One that was there waiting for him to discover it all along, and he was able to impact millions of lives and the earth for the better. I hope that we all have the opportunity to see and hear more stories like our guests soon, that we prioritize telling stories like this and growing projects like this so that we can turn our focus to constructiveness and hope instead of despair, despite challenging and distressing circumstances. Wishing you all safety, peace, health, and strength in this challenging year and so grateful that you're spending some of your time with us. And now for today's inspiring episode. Tony Renato had a dream as a child, to be of service, to make a difference in the world. He didn't know how he would do it, but he knew he wanted his life to have a purpose and that he wanted to leave the world better than when he arrived. In the 1980s and early 90s, while he was in his 30s, Tony accidentally discovered what would become his life's work. Tony Renato's father and grandfather were both farmers in his native Australia, and he clearly has carried on his family's passion for growing things. Tony studied agriculture in Australia before moving with his wife to Niger in sub-Saharan West Africa in order to do missionary work and land restoration work primarily to support local farmers as those farmers sought to improve their ability to grow crops and support themselves and their families. Upon his arrival in Africa, Tony saw that a barren landscape meant harsh growing conditions And he worked for years to solve the problem, using his expertise in agriculture and the tools that he was given through organizations he partnered with. Tony knew that trees would help to restore the land if he could just get them to grow and help the land to restore itself. He oversaw the planting of many trees which died over and over again. Until one day, Tony realized that there were already millions of trees in the ground just waiting to come back to life. Tony recognized that what looked like small bushes and stumps around the landscape were actually remains of trees that had been cut, burned, or destroyed in the last century, either by farmers or by conflict, and that with the right method, the living root systems under the ground, which nobody could see and everyone had forgotten about, could have the potential to fill the landscape with new trees. Tony tested this theory and was proven right. From this realization, Tony developed a method for regrowing trees and rejuvenating the land. Tony's method is now called FMNR, or Farmer Managed Natural Regeneration. As its name implies, FMNR is managed by local farmers on the ground who have been trained to replicate Tony's technique. By using FMNR, Farmers in Africa and Asia have been able to revive these dry and barren landscapes where the soil is very difficult to work, and now huge stretches of ground where the soil had died or become depleted are springing back to life. This dry, brown, dusty soil is turning back into fertile soil. We'll hear Tony describe his method in more detail, so don't worry if you're not grasping it just yet, but just know that this method has brought hope and growing prosperity back to the farmers who are affected by it throughout Africa. And it's now being deployed in Asia as well, with huge potential for expansion to other continents as this movement led by farmers and this technique grows through word of mouth and the work that Tony does to increase awareness around this program and educate farmers around the world. There are so many implications for the benefits of FMNR, which Tony will describe for us in a bit. And in a world where trees are one of our best partners for climate stability, there's also massive potential for FMNR to grow into something even greater beyond the benefits that it offers to farming. One quick reference note. For those of us who aren't experts in the metric system, an FYI that will help as we get into our interview is this— One hectare of land is exactly 10,000 square meters, or just over 100,000 square feet, which is a little bit less than two football fields. Again, one hectare is just under two football fields, so keep that in mind. Now, a recipient of many prestigious awards, including the Right Livelihood Award, known as the Alternative Nobel Prize for Work in Human Rights, Environmentalism, and Sustainability, Tony's innocent and honest childhood prayer to make a positive impact on the world has grown beyond anything he could have imagined, and his story highlights the ability of one life to transform the lives of so many others, both human life as well as plant and animal life, and therefore, the health of the earth. Tony is helping to heal the earth, to bring life back to lost ecosystems, and all by simply understanding nature well enough to help her recover herself with our support. What better conversation could we have directly after Earth Day, at a time when we're all asking, what can I do? How can we make a difference in such a complex and challenging world? Tony shows us what's possible if we commit to making a difference and then follow through on whatever we have to offer. So today we're joined by Tony Renato, forest maker and senior climate action advisor for World Vision Australia. Uh, Thanks so much, Tony, for joining us today. Really glad to have you.
0: Thank you. Pleasure, Nathan.
1: So, Tony, if you don't mind, I'd like to start with a little bit about you and your story, maybe a bit as far as where you grew up and how what you saw growing up led you to the work that you're doing today.
0: Sure, so I, I grew up in a very beautiful part of Australia, southeast Australia, in the country, and the, the hills around us were, were covered in Australian bush, um, not quite the same as your forests in Europe, but uh, very very lovely bushland. We had crystal clear mountain streams, and the, the valleys were used for agriculture, so cropping and uh, livestock grazing. But there was a lot of pristine bush. I I really loved it. I I, uh, walked in those hills, climbed the trees, we swam in the rivers, we went fishing, but at the same time there was a lot of environmental destruction. The the clearing of that bushland and planting of uh, monoculture forestry species. So a lot of erosion, a lot of loss of biodiversity, and the particular crop they were growing at that time, mainly tobacco, used a lot of heavy chemicals, which drifted into those rivers that that we swam in, and sometimes there were fish kills. So, you know, it had this uh, contrast: beauty and diversity, and destruction at the same time. Well, I, I always loved growing things. I was the gardener in my family, and. Um, I think that what I was seeing in the, the destruction of the environment and also I, I would read, I'd watch television and realise while we were growing tobacco in, in our beautiful country, children just like me who through no fault of their own were going to bed hungry elsewhere. So I was quite angry. And I, I just threw up a child's prayer, asking God to use me somehow, somewhere to make a difference. So it was that... Yeah, wanting to help, wanting to make a difference and not wanting to conform to what I saw was, was a very destructive way
1: of life that we live in the West. Yeah, no, absolutely. Would you speak a bit more about sort of what you think humans have to learn about interacting with nature, sort of what you've observed from an early age? And also, as you've grown your career and accomplishments in the world, you know, what are we missing when it comes to how to think about our relationship with nature and what it can bring us if we approach it from a more constructive place? Yeah.
0: Well, I I think what people miss is that we're not separate to nature. We're a part of it. And actually our well-being, our food, our water, our air, our sense of peace and harmony is intricately linked with nature. And too many people feel it's an either-or. Either I destroy the environment and have a a wealthy, comfortable life, or I protect nature and I go poor. And that's an absolute lie, it's, it's a false uh, dichotomy. And in fact, our, our life will be much, much happier and uh, economically, environmentally and socially much, much richer if we work with nature instead of fighting it all the time and, and destroying it. It's, it's to our own peril when we take that approach. And and you can see that in climate, in pollution, in so many ways.
1: Yeah, I think what you've said is so perfect, given the work that you've done and what you've sort of, the approach that you've taken with your work really speaks to that, to that idea that if we just come to nature with a better understanding and maybe a bit more openness, then there's so much we can accomplish. There's so much we can do in collaboration with nature. And so I'd love to just hear you speak about how you came to the work that you're known for, and what sort of sparked the idea for your approach.
0: Okay, so um, my my family and I moved to Niger Republic in West Africa, so landlocked country, borderland of the Sahara Desert, and uh, this was um, 1980. And the landscape that confronted us in, in my lifetime, in my childhood, it had been a biodiverse dryland forest with patches of farmland here and there but still plenty of wildlife and plenty of trees and over the span of just 20 to 30 years as populations grew trees got cleared the the wildlife disappeared and at the same time while we didn't know it at the time i lived there climate change was kicking in rainfall levels were dropping But that deforestation had caused massive land degradation and and even desertification. And so when we arrived, um, the intensity and the frequency of drought was increasing. Soil fertility had plummeted. Uh, The incidence of pest attacks, because you take away the biodiversity, the the insect-eating birds, there's no trees for spiders and so on then the insect pests multiply, especially in a wet year. You still had some years when there was rainfall. So a lot of crops in a good year, so-called good year, were attacked by insect pests. Wind speeds of 60 kilometres per hour, extremely high soil surface temperatures. And so you, you really had a hostile environment for growing crops. And while I, I'm not a forester, I, I've always loved trees, but... I realised very quickly that without some level of tree cover, you can't talk about agriculture here. And so we I was managing a very small reforestation project using the conventional methods of um, uh, raising seedlings in a nursery and planting them out. And it, it was an almost total failure. The people weren't interested. Here we are hungry, here we are poor and Tony wants us to plant trees on our precious farmland. (laughs) And the environment was so hostile, the drought, the heat, the wind, the goats, you name it, we had it. And you can imagine being fairly young at that time and enthusiastic, I was going to change the world, year after year, meeting total failure and getting no thanks for it. The people called me the crazy white farmer. So I was very, very frustrated, and I, I think someday so depressed, it would have been quite easy to give up and go home. And then one day I was driving, um, we had a pickup truck and a trailer load of trees to take out to the villages. The soil is very sandy, so I, I stopped the vehicle to reduce the air pressure, otherwise you get bogged. And at, at that time I just I looked in all directions, hardly a tree, And I thought, this is a big waste of time and money. How many million dollars would you need? How many years would it take? How many staff using these methods? And, of course, it didn't add up. You wouldn't make an impact. But at the same time, I felt I was meant to be there. And I refer back to that prayer, there must be a solution, (laughs) And, you know, I'd been on this track almost weekly for two and a half years by this stage, eyes open, but totally blind to what had been there all the time. And on on this particular day, a small bush caught my attention, what I thought was a bush. And I took the trouble to walk over and take a closer look. And the leaf of a tree is like a signature. It's unmistakable. And immediately when I saw that bush, I said, that's no bush. That's a tree. It's been cut down. It's sprouting profusely, there are multiple stems, maybe 50, 60 stems, all competing to, to get up and become a tree again. But the normal farming practice is to, to slash that, uh, those suckers, those shoots, slash them, burn them, and plow over them. <laughs> And But in, in that instance, everything changed. I wasn't fighting the Sahara Desert. I didn't need a multi-million dollar budget. Everything that I needed was literally at my feet. And, and that was the start of the change. I knew from my travels, there were millions of these so-called bushes strewn across that landscape, just waiting for the chance to be released and grow back into trees again.
1: Yeah, I think it's so beautiful that, you know, the solution was right there in front of us all along, and you just happened to meet the opportunity because your intention was to help, and you were open to, you know, whatever solution presented itself to you, maybe somewhat out of desperation. But I think in the world, every challenge we have has a solution, and I think many of them are actually right in front of us and quite simple very often. And if we can just have the openness that you had and combine that with that intention to be part of the solution, there's so much that can happen. Would you speak to the success of your method for this reason where it doesn't require anything other than just that willingness to approach with maybe a new way of thinking, uh, with, with this very simple solution where the tools are already there for us to, to use.
0: Oh, oh, definitely. And, and it wasn't without effort beforehand. I tried everything in my power. I, I researched, I consulted others, I experimented. So I think it was when I exhausted all possibilities that this happened and, um, oh, It had been there the whole time. And I I love what Bill Mollison said. He's the father of permaculture. And he said, the solutions to the increasingly complex problems of the world are embarrassingly simple. (laughs) Hmm. Embarrassingly simple. And, yes, so when, when you do look around and see, well, actually, what do I have? You know, do, do an accounting. What what do I have? You'll be surprised at what we have at hand. And, and another uh, notable person, Alan Savory, the father of holistic grazing management, he, he taught me that um, the best solutions are the simple ones. So very definitely. And, and in terms of the people... If if it wasn't simple, if it wasn't low cost, if it wasn't easily replicable, there wouldn't be a story and and you wouldn't be talking to me today. The the people did the work, not me. Once they realised this was in their interest, this worked. It improved the soil, the crops, the livestock, their income. The rest is history. Neighbour learnt from neighbour. And it spread. Well, it's a bad example. It spread like wildfires, spread quickly.
1: <laughs> yeah. So speak about that more, if you would, as far as what impact this has had. So you've spoken about how it was just a matter of recognizing that the trees were already trying to regrow. We just had to care for them. How did that eventually over time start to replenish the land and allow for more you know, fertile ground for other crops as well?
0: So So on a physical level, uh, when you have trees in that landscape, firstly, it's a physical barrier to, barrier to the dusty winds, the Harmattan winds of the Sahel region. And that tree is effectively harvesting fine organic matter and dust from the air that blows by. Any obstruction causes a turbulence and, and you get a fertile more fertile, it's not you know, it's not rich, rich soil, but it's more fertile than the sand that stays behind any tree in, in the length of the dry season is going to attract livestock to the shade, to the edible leaves and seed pods, the livestock are going to uh, fertilize that soil and birds of the air will come into that tree and also drop their, their manure. Trees drop leaves, so you're building up organic matter. Organic matter acts as a sponge, so what little rain falls is held, it Doesn't it less runs off, less evaporates, more is held by the soil organic matter uh, holds the fertility. So what fertility there is, instead of being leached away, it's now there, and that organic matter is feeding the microorganisms that make the the nutrients available. So many different ways in which the trees increase the fertility. But on on the social side of it, neighbor learned from neighbor. We certainly did our part, we facilitated exchanges, We invited people to come and learn from our farmers. We sent our farmers to other parts of the country. But it was this organic movement of farmers learning from farmers, and it it spread
1: really without my knowledge. Hmm. I love that it was just one solution which led to so many other things and i think we see this in a lot of sustainability focused projects and programs where if you can just get one thing right then the entire system can replenish and so many benefits can grow out of it so all these species now are benefiting from additional food sources and the leaves of the trees and then more organic matter in the soil means more organisms of all kinds of living things and then also from a human standpoint you know increased crop yield and protection from climate impact. And I just think when you look at programs like this, it's so inspiring because there's so much power in just bringing the right approach. There's so much good that can grow out of it. Um, Would you speak about how the lives of these farmers locally in Niger have have changed because of this and sort of some of maybe the numbers around their increased crop yields and what this has meant for people on the ground?
0: Certainly. So um, up to a doubling of crop yield. Now, it's from a very low base. So, but if you're, if you're on the edge of hunger every year, that's significant uh, to double your crop yield and, and uh, people, people harvesting 800 to 1,000 kilograms per hectare as opposed to uh, 200, 300, 400 kilograms. So doubling their crop yields. Having those trees there meant, in the years when there was a drought, the farmers with the trees were much, much less likely to have total crop failure than farmers without trees. They were much less likely to lose their livestock from hunger because these trees are like aerial haystacks. The leaves, the seed pods for most of the species are edible. And so you've got a stored stock of, of livestock food. Um, additional income streams so people could now sell surplus fuel wood before the women were walking up to four hours every second day just to collect fuel wood or in the total absence of fuel wood uh, having to burn straw which should be going back onto the soil to become organic matter or even manure as their fuel source and then the the time it takes, the effort it takes, is a great drain on on the women's health and energy and ability to care for the family or take part in economic activities. It's estimated that because FMNR in Niger, over a 20-year period, it's spread to 5 million hectares, it's estimated that Nigerian farmers are growing an additional 500,000 tonnes of grain per year, enough to feed 2.5 million people. And the gross income of 4.5 million people has uh, increased by up to $1,000. So the value of what you consume plus the surplus that you sell, up to $1,000. And if you take that across the 4.5 million people, it's $900 million per year without subsidy, without any ongoing project, or government support, and if you look at the context, where where is this happening? Who are these people? This is on the edge of the Sahara Desert in one of the poorest countries in the world, and it's a movement generated by mostly illiterate, risk-averse farmers. So if you take that last little bit into account, this is extremely significant in global terms for Poor smallholder farmers.
1: Yeah, and I love what you said about it's just people with the land. It's just farmers with the land. It's not sort of complex, you know, NGOs coming in to teach people a whole new way of thinking. Or real, it's just take what you have, treat it properly, and things will change. And so much more opportunity can come. This, this, um, is, this is
0: a very yeah. important point. Uh, certainly, we played a role, but we were learning too. We were partners in this. And I said to people, I think this will work. Would would you try this with me? And I I had in my mind a picture of what the tree should look like. But fortunately, I had the sense to let people do what they wanted. And as it turns out, of course, every individual does something slightly different to meet their personal needs. Had I insisted on the Tony method... (laughs) why would anyone want to do that? And so I was learning and I continue to learn, you know, 30, 40 years later, as I go back into these countries where I've been, I learn something new every time. So it's it's certainly not a a Western white hero coming in on his horse and (laughs) saving people. This is mutual.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so on that track, as far as how it's been deployed in other areas in the world, other countries, um, other regions, what are the implications of FMNR, as you said, which is farmer-managed natural regeneration, which is this sort of program, this process, this method? How has it been implemented in other areas of the world outside of, the, outside of Niger?
0: So it's really quite exciting. And I, I must say, firstly, that th- this is also a, a traditional method, that you can find examples of in Europe, in Africa, in other parts of the world, going back centuries. And for various reasons in various places, we've gotten out of the habit of doing this. You know, maybe modernization to clear the land and use tractors and so on. Maybe in some cases, desperation, they cut the trees to earn money to buy food. But it's not something that I uniquely invented. (laughs) So I just wanted to put that on the table. And what I can say, I now work with World Vision and through World Vision programming, we have introduced this into at least 27 countries. And um, I've made a great effort to make sure that it's it's freely available on, on the internet, on webinars and wherever. It's open source. And so other organisations have started to promote this. Other governments have started to recommend this to their farmers. What what I do know, um, and it's hard to get exact figures, because it's not like planting trees. You can geo-reference a tree and know exactly where it is. I'm planting an idea. And once I've released that idea, I have no control and not necessarily any feedback to let me know what's happened. But our best estimate is globally, there's probably about 17 million hectares. You know, For example, in, in Malawi, in southern Africa, and nobody knows how this started. For all uh, purposes, it appears to be purely a farmer-originated and generated movement. There are about 3.2 million hectares of farmland with more trees today than two decades ago. It's it's a form of FMNR. In West Africa, there are seven countries with about 15 million hectares, in, including Niger, so 15 million hectares there, and lots of other places where there's exciting stories uh, evolving even as we speak.
1: Yeah, and I think it's over two dozen countries now in Africa who have deployed FMNR techniques, and some countries in Asia as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's so exciting. exciting,
0: and 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 it gives me a thrill that other organizations are really getting on the the bandwagon and, and promoting it within their sp- spheres of influence. So it's way beyond my control. Not that I ever controlled it, but I'm just so happy that it has a life of its own. It's
1: not dependent on one person or one organization. You've spoken about what this means for the farmers on the ground and especially the women with sort of the daily tasks and requirements for their needs. What do you see as far as the opportunity for empowerment for these farmers you know to sort of have more food security and also financial security and also more sort of autonomy not having to depend on external support or you know uh educational practices this really is them kind of taking you know the shape of their growth into their own hands it sounds like oh it's so powerful
0: I, there's so many stories um Where do I start? A chief in in, uh, Ghana said to me... Well, I'll I'll save that. When I first went there in about um, 2013 or so, a lot of deforestation and the women were walking long distances for fuel wood. They would flip. One year there would be a drought. The next year, flood. The children weren't in school because they were needed to help support the family. So it's quite a desperate situation and the community agreed through World Vision Ghana the community agreed to pilot this on a few hundred hectares of communal land and I got to visit 2 years later they had firewood close at hand the microclimate had greatly modified and it was much cooler uh, much more moisture in the soil the gr- grass lasted for longer into the dry season wild fruits. Many of these trees, indigenous trees, had wild fruits, edible leaves, uh, traditional medicines, fuel wood, building timber, in, in just two years. And whereas the, they had been at a point where they said, if it had gotten any worse, we, we were about to leave our traditional lands, everything that we know and love, and go to the capital city. That, that's how bad it got. And the old chief said, "Uh, uh, this gift, this FMNR is a gift of the almighty God. And wherever you bring it, you bring life and joy. That's how dramatic the change was. And in my own time in Niger Republic, I lived there for 17 years. And I did a bit of a tour before I left. I had some visitors and they wanted to see the work. And so we went to a village and we sat under the tree. And everywhere in Africa, you, you, you stand, you sit somewhere and you form a crowd. People curiously come to talk. And I, I asked this question of all the different activities of our project well dr- drilling, introducing fuel efficient stoves, uh, new crops, the, the, the natural regeneration work the famine relief that we did, of all the different activities, which was the most significant? And, you know, I I was going through all these things, which one would it be? And somebody stood up and they said, actually, none of them. (laughs) I thought, what? I'm a failure. (laughs) My time was wasted. What does he mean? And he said, what you've done, before you came, and we had these interventions... All we saw of our village chief was the dust from their vehicles. They sped through our village. The only time we had a government representative here was when they came to fine us for chopping down a tree. And we were unknown to the world. Our only contact was through the BBC, but as far as we were concerned, we were nothing. We were nobody. What this project did was it gave us our sense of dignity and self-worth. And, you know, that's so powerful. Here here I was thinking it's about the trees. (laughs) No way, no way. It's about people. And if you've got a sense of dignity and self-respect, you can change the world. (laughs) This is really powerful stuff.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, in a way, it's like every one of these farmers who are now transforming their own lives through this method, they're also part of sort of healing and regenerating the earth. You mentioned microclimates, these little pockets where, you know, small areas are starting to, you know, spring back to life, which will impact the larger system, of course, as well. There are larger implications for, for global climate here, where trees are, you know, becoming new carbon sinks, having regrown from cut down forests. There's something you've said in the past that I read that I wanted, I would love to hear you speak about, which is that there are sort of underground forests underneath our feet. And this really is just working with those underground forests, these root systems, which is really sort of the heart of, of this work and the opportunity to regrow these trees. Um would you speak about why this is so ubiquitous throughout Africa, why there are opportunities to implement this work around the world and sort of what is that resource under the ground that these farmers are now working with that, you know, really has implications globally on a large scale?
0: Mm-hmm. Sure. So, so the rule of thumb is that if there was a forest there in the past, even the distant past, theoretically, that forest can be restored. Now, in, in some places it might be harder and take longer, and in other places it'll be quicker and, and easier. But the rule of thumb is, if in the past there was a forest, then theoretically we should be able to find some remnant. And nearly always, you know, when you, when you watch the news and there's some arid country, uh, Afghanistan, Somalia, whatever, even though it's practically a barren landscape in the background, you'll almost always see a sentinel tree. And that raises big questions to me. Why is there only one tree there? Were there others in the past? And if one tree can grow, couldn't others grow as well? (laughs) And you you rightly said that large parts of Africa, they they have this underground forest. In the recent past, we're talking within the last century or so, many of these trees have been cut down. And in many cases, the tree stump is still alive. In most cases, they don't have heavy machinery, bulldozers and explosives to remove them. The tree stump is still alive, and it has the capacity to re-sprout. In some places, it might be even just a piece of root of a tree that still has that ability, has buds that can regrow. And in many cases, they've been so thorough, they've removed the stumps, they've removed the roots, but there's seeds in the soil. And particularly in the arid zones, the tree species tend to have seeds with hard coats, so they can, they can last in the soil for decades, maybe centuries. And it just needs the right conditions to, to regenerate. And uh, what, what I've found is, uh, actually, it, it's not so much what we need to do, it's what we need to stop doing. Nature is perfectly capable of healing itself if we give it a chance. And so as much as FMNR is a technique, it's also about mindset change. At at the root of all behaviour is what you believe. And most of us, to one degree or another, have very false beliefs about the value of trees and nature. We have very negative attitudes. So I'm a farmer, I have to grow crops, I have to remove every bit of competition. So negative attitudes and destructive habits. We burn, we chop, we plough, we overgraze. Now, if you can change those behaviours, nature itself, if, if it's there, and, and like, I've been to very few places where, where there's not some remnant, even in hyper-arid deserts, very often you'll see some capacity to regenerate, let alone more tropical areas. If, if it's there and you remove the constraints... It's like a coiled spring ready to be released, and it's surprising, even in a dry
1: country like Niger, how fast these trees could grow. What does that mean for places where, I, I think a lot of the time we think of deforestation as the end of a forest, but... It's not true. So what are the implications for areas of the world like the Amazonian rainforest or the, the temperate rainforests on the west coast of Canada and the Pacific Northwest in the United States? Is there potential to sort of regenerate and regrow these, a lot of these old growth or rainforest areas with time um, and with the right approach as well?
0: Oh, most definitely. And, and particularly when when you think of the Amazon, it's got this, <laughs> I like to think, lust for life. You you try and stop it. Hmm. And it's only the fact that once you remove the forest, you either completely plough it and herbicide it and keep it in soybeans, or you continually stock it with large numbers of livestock. Remove those constraints and it, it'll bounce back. And so, uh, once again, it comes down to your beliefs, which, which are, are the root of all your actions. So if making a quick profit from soybeans is more important to you than working with nature and, and still making a profit, I'm not talking about going back to the dark ages and living in poverty, not using any technology, in no way am I saying that. But there's a better way to approach this, regenerative farming. It's a whole suite of different ways of managing land sustainably, working with biodiversity and not destroying the thing and trying to conform it into our image and make it do what we want to do by all means possible. Machinery, chemicals, you name it, we're going to make it conform and squeeze out every last dollar. There's other ways to do this. So, but you, this, is, this was the big surprise to me. Um, 95% of my time is not spent on technical forestry issues. 95% of the time is spent on re-greening minescapes. And if I win the battle between the ears, particularly in the case where FMNR is possible, the rest is easy. Everything that you need, nature will provide for you. Nature will heal itself. So win this battle, and the rest will follow. And I realise the work that I do has got nothing to do with trees, really. I'm turning enemies into friends, enemies into friends. And if if you if you achieve that, and work with nature. <laughs>
1: Oh, what, what's what's not possible? <laughs> yeah, I think what you've said is so powerful. When we're our relationship with nature and the natural world is sort of fraught more than it's ever been. We know on a global scale that we're not getting it right because we're seeing massive destruction, loss of ecosystem, loss of biodiversity, loss of species. So it's time for a new way of thinking. It's time to see nature as our partner because we are on this planet. We are made of these same elements all around us. And we cannot pretend like we uh, benefit from controlling or dominating it any longer. I think we've seen that that doesn't work. And I think what you're saying is so true. And on a point that you made earlier, how do you see FMNR and regenerative practices being sort of an answer to This idea from especially agribusiness corporations that we need to feed the world using, you know, chemical based methods or, you know, much more industrial based methods, you know, how is this sort of an answer to that to say there's a way that we can do this that actually benefits us, benefits the earth, benefits our climate, benefits people on the ground, increases food yield, you know, there's not just one solution here. There's, there's, there's a whole other path that's available.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, They say that 30% of the world's food comes from poor smallholder farmers, 30%. And if you take the example of Niger in a very hostile climate where yields, your starting point is already very low, if they can double their crop yields there by adopting one practice, FMNR. And, and remember, I said there's a whole suite of things you can do. Conservation, ag- agriculture, agroforestry, holistic grazing management, organic farming. You, you can use different combinations of different regenerative practices to do much, much better than our farmers. If 30% of the world farmers uh, doubled their crop yields, what an impact that would have on food security. And I, I think there's a little bit of a... False sense of importance here that it, it all depends on us with our uh, monocultural, monolithic industrial agriculture to feed the world. Firstly, at this present time, there's no shortage of food, an awful lot is wasted. And um, secondly, you know, something like 75% of the Earth's surface is degraded. Imagine if we restored the original fertility and productivity of of a naturally biodiverse landscape with your natural areas and your farmed areas. Imagine the productivity as it is now. We're like a a man walking with one leg. (laughs) We're on a ruined foundation. So there's so much that can be done. Now, there's no silver bullet. Every year there's going to be challenges, whether you're organic or or otherwise. There'll be different pests and diseases. There'll be high rainfall and low rainfall yields. You're going to be challenged. But working with nature, I, I would say it, it's a lot cheaper. There's less costs in chemicals and, and infrastructure and machinery. And the greater diversity actually counts for a much more robust, much more resilient agriculture. If one thing fails, something else will still produce. Now, with the trees, in a crop failure year, the farmers still had food for their animals, firewood they could sell, in some cases beehives, and so on and so forth. Now, the more diversity you add, the greater Robustness, your agricultural system is. It's resilient against climate shocks and insect attacks and so on. So yeah, and, and it's not like it's not like this is anything new. There's a, a very strong and growing regenerative
1: agricultural movement around the world. Yeah, which is so exciting to see. And every time I see examples of it, I see this idea play out that we've been speaking about, which is if we take this approach, there are so many benefits. The things that come from these programs are amazing and surprising as far as their impact and the speed with which we see the positive outcomes. And I'm so encouraged by it. And, you know, just as we come closer to the end of our time, uh, there's something I wanted to ask about, because as I was reading about your work and about what has inspired you, I know that your sort of spiritual life has been a big part of what has driven you. And I'd love to hear you speak about how you know you see a connection between spirituality and nature and how your spiritual self has informed your work and you know sort of how that has played into what you've been able to accomplish yeah sure
0: um yeah where to start so i, I guess I, I realize if you believe in a god and and god is creator and you look at what's been created such beauty such diversity it, it's it's uh, overwhelming, really. It, it changes the perspective. It's not us going out to save the world on our own, in our own strength. What, what I learned is we're in this together with God. We've got a pretty mighty helper. And I, I learned through very hard times and sometimes desperate times, in times of famine when we had no food to give people, God answers prayer and God's incredibly uh, concerned about the environment. You know, in in churches too often we hear it's all about only about going to heaven and salvation and so on. It's all about people. But actually, that same God is incredibly concerned about the environment. And we can be partners with God in that restoration project. So uh, I I guess my my faith was strengthened. Uh, I was quite... Humbled to realise it wasn't all up to me, <laughs> that something bigger at play was happening. And I, I think, you know, a little bit echoed in, in the COVID experience, we learned to be a bit more humble, that we're not in control of everything, a little bit more respectful of what we do have and, and the value of nature. You know, there were almost traffic jams on our, on our walking paths during COVID. Everybody was out in the park. It's Just amazing, and um, yeah, to, to value life and value value the time that we have here on this earth much much more.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Would you speak about? I think at this time on the planet, many of us who are concerned about these topics, there's a lot of reasons to be concerned, and there's a lot of th- there's a, certainly a lot of challenges, and there are very powerful you know, forces that are working to continue this profit driven model, which can be very destructive. And you've been through experiences in your own life where you had to be persistent. You had to have faith. You had to sort of follow your inspiration through a lot of challenges and famine and, what guidance would you give to all of us who see a lot of challenges and, you know, and are searching for opportunities to feel hopeful? What can carry us through this time to that place of, look what we've discovered, look what we've been able to accomplish. There's so much working in our favor if we can just get out of the hero complex a little bit and, and have some trust. Um, I would love to hear you speak about that.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I guess, firstly, I have four children and eight grandchildren. And I, I don't think I could look them in the eye and say there's no hope. Not, not while I'm breathing, not while there's actions that I can take. So if there's life, there's hope. And if there's hope, then we, we should do everything in our power to fulfill hope's promise. So if all you can do, it may be, maybe you're incapacitated or whatever, if all you can do is turn the light switch off when you leave a room, for goodness sakes, do it. Most of us are in a stronger position than that. We can join a group, we can get informed, we can take action, we can donate, we can go. That might be local or international. There's so much that we can do. And, you know, in in Niger, hope was lost. People didn't know what tomorrow would bring. And I I got to go back there uh, two years ago with uh, a filmmaker, Volker Schlondorf, And I was so thrilled. What had been uh, a vicious cycle, downward spiral of uh, degradation, poverty, hopelessness, had become a virtuous upward cycle, restoration, relative prosperity, strong hope for the future. If that can happen on the edge of the Sahara Desert, in the poorest country in the world with illiterate risk-averse people for goodness sakes us with our relative wealth and technology and knowledge for goodness sakes don't give up hope do something
1: (laughs) yeah i think that's fantastic and also too i'm so inspired by your story specifically, because as you mentioned earlier, you sort of had this child's prayer. Let me be useful. Let me bring good to this planet in some way. And you then became part of this method, which is transforming an entire continent and has transformed millions of lives with their, you know, participation and in collaboration, as you said, it wasn't just you, but you became sort of a conduit for many others to come together and collaborate and, and rally around this idea, which really has had a huge impact in a relatively short amount of time and has massive implications around the world, not just for farmers, but for po- people concerned with biodiversity, for for species, for wildlife. And so if each one of us can just do that same thing to sort of get quiet and say, let me be useful, let me be an instrument for positive change, there's so much that can happen. I mean, if we can just get that idea into our heads and nothing else, I think our world can transform so quickly.
0: Yes, yes, and it's powerful. It's powerful, and as soon as you start to make a movement in a a certain direction, I, I, I like to say the powers of the universe come to support you. Other people will join you that you didn't even know existed. Uh, knowledge that you didn't have will come to you there's so many things um, once you take that first step it's the hardest step you know sometimes you have to give up something, there's lots of good things we could do, we could make more money we could party, we could do lots of things, so it's not it's not cost free but once you begin to be willing to sacrifice something and take that step then more and more comes to you and you get a clearer vision and the next step becomes easier and more definite. You know the direction to take. And I I falsely use the word sacrifice there. While it seems a sacrifice, it seems we're giving up, actually it's only benefit, it's only blessing. What what I feel, you know, people thought, oh, Tony, so wonderful, you left Australia and lived in, in a remote poorer country... In no way, I'm so much enriched. The relationships I formed, the the blessing of giving. You know, you get more than you receive when you you give. You're not giving up anything. You're gaining. So don't think, oh, I guess I better go out and save the world. Poor old me. You're actually benefiting yourself as much as anybody else. <laughs>
1: Yeah. I think too, you make such a good point that sometimes we have to be willing to leave something behind in order to move towards something that we know is better for us. You know, we might be drinking a lot of alcohol before, for years before we say, is this really the best thing for me? So we have to give up a habit, a way of being, a way of having fun that actually enriches our lives very much if we're open to that change. And if we can just as a global community start to recognize those opportunities to leave destructive things that might feel good in the short term in some ways for things that are so much more enriching and so much deeper that deepen our connection to ourselves and each other and the earth if we can have that perspective and that maturity to make that choice then there's so many amazing things that are ready for us just waiting to kind of enter our experience for sure yeah so Tony just as we wrap up, I just want to ask one more question. What would you say to listeners who want to learn more about FMNR, who want to support these programs, who want to even, even potentially support farmers on the ground? You know, how can people get involved with, with your work and what, with, with what you've accomplished? Sure.
0: So firstly, get informed. Um, th- there's a website, FMNR Hub dot com dot au and and maybe later you can put that up on your screen, so read about it, learn about it Um, I I would say if you're a praying person, pray because a a lot of the success, honestly I I attribute to a higher power if you're in a position to give do so, there's many excellent projects and they're transformative, it's not throwing good money to, to, to waste it It's transformative. It's releasing. It's not creating dependency and long-term reliance on outside sources. When you help somebody to work with nature and and use the resources at hand, you're releasing them to be self-supporting. So if you're in a position to give do so. There's a a donate button on that website and also many World Vision offices. I I think your audiences are in different countries. If you go to the World Vision website of your country, many of those offices have their own FMNR projects in various parts of the world. It's actually an international partnership and Australia is one member and yes, particularly as World Vision has become aware of the, the climate crisis and also the impact of land degradation on people. Uh, it, it, world Vision is becoming stronger and stronger and more intentional about promoting FMNR around the world. So, yes, it is is one of the many activities that World Vision does. You know, we're all gifted in different ways, and we all have a different purpose on earth. So when I say if you're in a position to go to these countries and and work with communities, then do so. But that's not everybody's calling. And some people can have a much, much bigger impact within their local sphere or using the particular talent that they have. But at the same time, some people actually are meant to be elsewhere. So I I say that rather cautiously, but it's always an opportunity Uh, an option
1: yeah as we've said sort of consider what you have to give what gifts you have what you know passions you have and then just make the choice to offer what you can and you never know what can grow from that and it can be the smallest most simple thing and that still has meaning yes perfect thanks so much tony it's really been a pleasure speaking with you and i'm so inspired by what you've been able to be part of and sort of lead and this conversation that you've brought to the global community. And I hope to see it just grow and grow. I want everyone to know about FMNR and its potential and its impacts. And, um, and if we can be some small part of that, then, you know, I'm honored to do so.
0: Thank you. It's been a great pleasure to meet you and, and speak with you.
1: Listening back to the conversation with Tony, there's one part that really strikes me which I sort of alluded to earlier, it's the persistence that it took for Tony to discover his solution. He spent years in Niger, trying all of the available methods to help the local farmers. He brought in trees to plant them and help farmers manage them, which didn't work. He did his best to provide other relief, but he knew he wasn't getting anywhere. Tony wanted to give up, He mentioned how he was depressed, he was frustrated, unable to solve the problems that he was focused on, day in and day out, for years. He had to persist, to continue to believe that somehow he could and would make a difference, even though he had no idea how it would happen and the evidence of that belief was not showing itself anytime soon. Can't we all relate to that right now? Doesn't it feel like sometimes the world around us is in need of so much help, but we just don't have the right tools or the proper solutions or the right partnerships to get it done? We know what needs to be fixed, but we just can't seem to find the answer to these urgent, complex questions. We all have moments where we get depressed and just want to give up, even though some part of us, deep down, still knows it's possible to do better, at least That part is definitely alive in me. I can relate to that feeling of hopelessness coupled with a deep sense of possibility. Can you relate to that? Here's what hit me hard, though, about Tony's story. He stayed put. He didn't give up. He felt compelled to stay where he was regardless of how hopeless things seemed sometimes. Some part of him must have known that a solution had to exist— And after not giving up, despite having no idea how he was ever going to actually make a difference, one day everything changed. He looked down at his feet and realized that the answer had been there under the ground the whole time, waiting to be discovered, waiting to be shared. And now an entire region of the world and large portions of the entire continent of Africa are coming back to life. Through word of mouth and farmers spreading this technique, lives are changing by the day and now other countries around the world are taking notice and exploring this method and we haven't even begun to explore how this method this technique could bring life back to rainforests we've destroyed around the planet on the west coast of north america in brazil in malaysia and in indonesia and other parts of asia if we can just stay focused on being persistent and allow ourselves the space for moments of doubt which we will inevitably experience we'll get to that day where everything changes. I think Tony would say so. When enough people around the world want to be part of transforming it for the better, we're bound to reach our aha moment that Tony found. And then whatever solutions we find, whatever ideas we discover, whatever partnerships we create can be replicated and spread like wildfire across many different problems in the way that Tony's FMNR method has throughout Africa for the farmers there. This brings us to our three changemakers for today. Three ideas which could change our world, inspired by our guest. Changemaker number one. Moments of doubt and difficulty are always part of the story, but there is also always hope. This is not an easy time in our history. There are so many challenges that we face, and they're big. But if we can accept the difficulty of our time and do all we can to make improvements large and small anyway, we might just find ourselves having a day like Tony's. A day when everything changes, and what seemed impossible yesterday leads to a transformation we could never have expected or imagined. I'm so encouraged by that aspect of Tony's story, and who wouldn't be? Don't we all have moments of doubt and discouragement? not just about the planet, but also in our daily lives. It's always refreshing to hear about people and organizations who reached success despite insane odds against them and despite their difficulties. Let's not allow ourselves to be buried by despair, by certain moments of difficulty and doubt, or to lose sight of what we can offer in the face of huge challenges. Let's stick with it stay with the problem and not run away or bury our heads in the sand and one day i believe we will find that we had so much more power to make positive change than we ever realized and i believe that the world will look very different when we do reach that day change maker number 2 sometimes the solutions we're seeking are right in front of us if we can just open our eyes as we keep asking ourselves how can we change corporate culture how can we bring lasting peace Finally. How can we protect our planet from greater devastation from an environmental standpoint or prevent more human rights violations? How can we change hearts and minds around the world to prioritize valuing life instead of exploiting it? If we keep asking these questions, we're bound to find solutions. Many of our guests have already found ways to transform pieces of the world, their local or even global communities in some cases. By listening to our show, it should hopefully be obvious that there are ways to use our own creativity to turn problems into solutions, no matter how big those problems seem. That with persistence and patience, we can change this world. Tony's story demonstrates how answers exist all around us, sometimes in either unexpected or even sometimes obvious places and that those answers are so simple sometimes that we're almost embarrassed we didn't see them sooner. Let's stay optimistic and be on the lookout for the evidence of these solutions in the way that last year's guest Matt Josiak of Rethink Food did as he turned restaurants into meal suppliers just by changing his way of thinking to support the hungry Or the way Dave Heath, past guest and founder and CEO of Bombas, the one-for-one apparel company in New York City, realized that he could clothe millions of individuals in homelessness by operating a values-based clothing company. We don't have to boil the ocean. We don't have to solve every problem with one action or one project. We just have to do what we can with the ideas that come to us. Or support the organizations and people that we're inspired to support as Tony did, as Matt did, as Dave did, and as so many more have done and are doing. And changemaker number three, one person can change the world. I want to repeat some of the numbers around the scale of FMNR and how it's managed to grow since this method for regenerating the earth was first pioneered by Tony. Over a 20-year period since FMNR was started, 200 million trees have been grown primarily through word of mouth, and neighboring farmers seeing how effective this technique was and sharing with their neighbors. You can see the difference in the landscape from space. FMNR has spread to over 5 million hectares in Niger, which again is a little under 10 million football fields, leading to increase in crops of 500,000 tons of grain per year, which is enough to feed 2.5 million people. Due to FMNR, the gross income of 4.5 million people has increased by up to $1,000 each, equaling $9 million per year in increase in income without any other support. And now at least 27 countries in Africa and Asia are deploying FMNR as an open-source method – no gated access, no payments, they're just sharing it openly and widely which has now transformed a total globally of roughly 17 million hectares of land, which are now utilizing FMNR. That's almost 66,000 square miles. And that's just the beginning. All of this has grown from one life, from one person who saw an opportunity to serve others with his talents and who was in the right place at the right time, who despite wanting to give up, persisted, and found an answer to the question that he was asking We won't all be like Tony, and we don't have to be, but his story is evidence of what we are all capable of, what our creativity can give birth to in the world. Every time we're feeling depressed or frustrated or angry about what's going on in the world, or even frustrated with ourselves, let's remember that we are capable of so much. We're capable of doing so much good. Here's what you can do today check out the official FMNR website at fmnrhub.com.au. You can learn more about FMNR practices and read about actual FMNR projects happening throughout Africa and Indonesia right now. You can also donate if you're able to support the growth of FMNR around the world. You can also visit worldvision.org to learn more about the global nonprofit that Tony partners with to grow FMNR in nations throughout the globe. Another powerful action you can take is to learn more about the solutions to hunger around the world and how to ensure food supplies are resilient and robust for everyone. Especially at a time when we're hearing a lot about food shortages and supply chain disruption from many unfortunate circumstances in the world. Isn't a method like FMNR even more powerful at a time like this? If food shortages and food scarcity are one of the problems of our time, how can we solve it? How can we meet the challenge? FMNR is one answer for certain regions in the world where some very vulnerable people live. But what is some of the work others are doing to solve this problem in North America, in Europe, in Asia? Empowering ourselves with knowledge allows us to be immune to the anxieties of the moment because we know that there's another version of the story. We know about the answers to these questions, the solutions. We're not all doomed, and skyrocketing prices are not necessarily inevitable for food around the world if we can just find the right solutions and demand that they take shape. With some creativity and reframing of these problems and what's causing them and how to solve them, we can get to the other side much better than we are now. Our challenge for you today, which we do every episode, is to grow something. It's spring in many parts of the Northern Hemisphere, and we all have the opportunity to grow something indoors no matter what the season is like outside throughout the year. So grow something. Build a relationship with your food and with plants. I grow a lot of plants from seeds at home, and it can be challenging. It requires patience and faith and persistence. It's a great exercise in persistence and care. Some plants die, some thrive. Sometimes we have to learn how to care for the plants better, and sometimes they just weren't meant to make it. It's the same as our world right now. There are painful losses, uncontrollable circumstances, frustrating obstacles or moments of doubt, but there's always the opportunity to try again. And with persistence, we can often raise a beautiful living thing that we've cared for, that we're connected to in a really powerful way. And this might be one of the more poetic and symbolic challenges we've come up with, but I stand by it. Growing plants, especially from seed, but any kind of plant, even if you buy a seedling, it's a thrilling and challenging experience that will teach you a lot. It's taught me so much respect for the intelligence and resilience of nature, how these tiny little seeds can grow large into trees that bear fruit and vegetables and herbs that we can eat, that strengthen our health. We can grow flowers that benefit pollinators, which serves all of us in many ways. As Tony discovered, plants are incredibly resilient and can thrive if they're just given the right circumstances and a little care. And so can our ideas for a better world. If we just give them the right circumstances and some care, they can grow into something we never expected. Get a little taste of that experience through our challenge for today. If you'd like to support Tony and the work he is pioneering around the world, you'll be excited to hear that he's releasing his autobiography. The title is The Forest Underground, Hope for a Planet in Crisis. And it's actually coming out this week, one week after Earth Day on April 30th. I'll certainly be buying a copy myself. Can't wait to dig deeper into Tony's story, his mindset, his challenges, his victories, and more about how his work is impacting lives around the world. The book will be available this weekend, on the 30th, on Saturday, on Amazon and Barnes and Noble in digital format, globally, and in hardcover in Australia and New Zealand to start, and then hopefully we'll see some hardcovers and hard copies around the world before long. Another way to support Tony and FMNR is to share this episode with others to educate more people about this simple but transformative process that's driving up food production and food security and incomes and climate regeneration in some of the most challenging regions in the world. Use our show as a resource to expose others to stories like this one, stories of hope, stories of possibility, and to help spread the word about FMNR as an answer to global hunger and to climate change. And don't forget to visit fmnrhub.com.au to learn more about the work being done on the ground right now, and to donate if you're able and feel inspired. Be sure to subscribe to our show if you haven't already on whatever listening platform you love. Leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts to help bring our show to more listeners around the world, and check out our other episodes with global changemakers who are remaking the world right now and inspiring the rest of us with their example and their vision. There's no denying it's a frightening and frustrating world right now sometimes, but it's also one of the most incredibly creative times to be alive. We have so much potential to fulfill through the tools available to us with technology and communication. We have so many resources available to us, at least in the developed world, and that's growing as well through the undeveloped world. I have low moments and bad days like anyone else. But what always helps me to come back to my center is stories like Tony's. It's powerful to hear about people who have overcome massive challenges after years of failure years of trying, years of experimenting, but who've reached the other side. There's a well-known quote, where there's life, there is hope. We're not finished yet, far from it. So let's allow for the low moments and acknowledge our feelings when they come as we move forward, but still find a way not to give in and pack up. Let's not miss out on that single, ordinary day when everything suddenly changes. Because instead of giving up, we believed that it would come. Let's not deprive ourselves of the experience of reaching that one day when everything suddenly changes. Thanks for being with us here today. Be well, be safe, take care. Until next time.
0: So I was very, very frustrated. And I I think someday so depressed, it would have been quite easy to give up and go home. And then one day, everything changed.